Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This conversation is with the incredible author and neuroscientist, Lisa Genova. Lisa is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels, Still Alice, Left Neglected, Love Anthony, Inside the O'Briens, and Every Note Played. Her debut novel, Still Alice, about a Harvard University professor who suffers early onset Alzheimer's disease, sold millions of copies and has been translated into 37 languages. The book was adapted into a film in 2014 and won the Academy Award for Best Actress for Julianne Moore's highly acclaimed performance as Alice Howland. Her first work of nonfiction, Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting, was published in March 2021, and it was an instant New York Times bestseller. Her first TED Talk, What You Can Do to Prevent Alzheimer's, has been viewed over 8 million times, and her most recent TED Talk, How Memory Works and Why Forgetting is Totally Okay, was the sixth most watched TED Talk of 2021. She has been recognized numerous times and has won many awards for her incredible work, including receiving the Pell Center Prize for Story in the public square for, quote, distinguished storytelling that has enriched the public dialogue. It was such a pleasure to speak with Lisa, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Lisa, it's so wonderful to meet you in person. I feel like I know you. Um, just through your stories and through your conversations, you have had such a huge impact on us, on our work in the world of neuroscience in general, just because of the beautiful and eloquent way that you describe very difficult situations. And I love how you weave pain with hope and compassion in your stories. It's so wonderful to meet you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to both of you. I'm a huge fan of, of all of the information that you put out in such an accurate and compassionate way. Um, so I've been cheering you on for a while now and I'm excited to know you better. Thank you so wonderful. much. Thank wonderful. you. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the, what, as I was saying uh, with um, um, Aisha and even the kids last night, we, uh, one of the most important things people can do is communicate human experience um, with others in a way that connects to a larger denominator, as many people as possible. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of what's art is to give experiences beyond the immediate, um, uh, bring complexity into reality, um, and... and uh, especially in the age of AI, which we, we, it seems to be the common conversation everywhere, especially in our household, because both of our kids are going to technology and AI. Literally, if there's any value in humanity, it's that ability. And, and again, not to give you a full flattery of sense, but it's, it's the thing that you do, which is the most important thing that people can do, which is do, do just that, communicate that human experience, that emotion. And, and we see this on a daily basis for the last 19 years since, in fact, on the 29th of this year will be our 19th anniversary. Mm -hmm. The first conversation we had 20 years ago 
was around this experience that she, I she experienced with her grandfather, seeing this behemoth of a human being just wither away and lose parts of himself. Same thing with my grandfather. And you've done this repeatedly. What, what brought you to this journey? What was the first night? Is the first thing that got you into this uh, journey of tra translating emotions? It was, um, it was my grandmother. So my grandmother was a brilliant, amazing woman, um, very independent, capable of anything. And she, she got Alzheimer's. And I was in my late 20s. I'm from a big Italian family. And I was not, she had nine children. So I was not one of her caregivers that fell to the generation before me. Um, but I was around and I loved her very much. And I witnessed this disease sort of dis disassemble her. Um, and it was, it was really heartbreaking and hard and frustrating and confusing. And, um, but I'm the neuroscientist in my family, so I did my homework. I'm like, well, I can research this and, and understand this disease better and pass that education along to my family so we can better take care of her. And I learned a lot of information, and I learned a lot that was helpful, some that wasn't helpful to them because I really geeked out on the neuroscience of it all. So I learned everything about the molecular neurobiology of Alzheimer's to the extent that we understand it. I learned about the clinical management of the disease, and I learned about caregiving. And I found that everything was written by the point of view of an outsider. So it was a clinician, a scientist, a caregiver, a social worker. So there were all these views from the outside looking in. And I recognized that what was lacking for me as I was 28 years old at the time um, was empathy. So I had tons of sympathy I felt so bad for her. I felt so bad for us, right? All of those feelings I had were, were, were based on sympathy. There was a distance between us, right? So there's my grandmother who has Alzheimer's and she's so different than I am. I couldn't really fathom what it was like to be her because I was kind of too afraid to be still with it and be with her in it. So I was feeling so much sympathy for her. So there's all that emotional distance. That's how we otherize, yeah. right? Yeah. Sympathy and pity, that's, oh, you're different, you're othered. But empathy is the ability to feel with her and imagine what it's like to be her. Um, and co that collapses the emotional distance and we see how we're, we're the, we can share a human experience even if I don't have Alzheimer's, I can imagine what it's like to be her. Well, I didn't know how to do that then, but the aha moment for me was, Oh, fiction is a place where you can explore empathy. Story is the place where humans have the ability to walk in someone else's shoes. And so I thought, well, someday I'd like to write a novel about a woman living with Alzheimer's. Tell it from the very beginning, all of those moments and stages that we missed as a family because we were in denial or we had the false information of, oh, you know, Forgetting is a normal part of normal aging. Um, my grandmother hiding it because she was so proud and independent. So seeing it from the very beginning and told from the perspective of the person with it. Yeah, that was oh my God. Uh, so beautiful. And the, the, the way you describe and differentiate between empathy and, and sympathy is so critical. Um, uh, we were we just did a podcast on <clears throat> epilepsy, specifically Dostoevsky. And how um, his experience, of course, it's in first person in himself, but he, he tried to humanize his experience through all his characters, right? Um, uh, the, the struggles that he experienced with epilepsy 
he actually then brought into characters and, and that you're right. Fiction can open up everybody to, to the other becomes themselves in a way. That's such a, such a beautiful concept. And, and the science behind it, how did you, how did you, that's the hard part. Yeah, it is the hard how, part. How do you weave in, weave in the science? Well, for me, that was the easy part because I'm a neuroscientist. Yes. I mean, a novelist was like, how do I do that? And was scary. But the neuroscience was, um, that part was home for me. So in doing the research, I started in the science and the clinical. So I, I interviewed neuroscientists like Rudy Tanzi. I'm from Boston, and I, 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 my, I got my degree from Harvard, did all my training at Mass General Hospital. So that's my, my neighborhood and my playground. So um, I talked to Rudy. I talked to um, Al Aliatri at Mass General. I shadowed him. I sat in on neuropsych testing. I interviewed genetic counselors, general practice physicians. Um, and then the best piece of research I did is I came to know 27 people living with early stage and or early onset Alzheimer's who could still communicate what it feels like to live with it. And I was in touch with these folks pretty much every day for the year and a half that I was writing this book. Um, so the, the experts were, you know, the people on the outside and then the people on the inside. And then all the reading, of course, too. I did all the reading. But the, uh, you know, I tell anyone who's a writer, especially fiction, it's like, this is not a Google search. This is not just reading the textbooks. You need to, to go and find the people who live and breathe this. That's, that's where the gold is. Yeah, beautiful. And I think that's why it resonated so much with um, with us neurologists, you know, because we deal with it in the clinic. Um, we see the human side of it as well. But the way you've depicted it in a story format where people who are not really, who don't belong to those worlds, they get mm -hmm. a beautiful, complete picture of what a person goes through when they have dementia. Yeah. And I think you just touched on something that like one of the the gems of story is that it gives people who have the condition or the disease uh, a chance to be seen and heard, right? So people who have Alzheimer's, if they read Still Alice, they say, that's me, that's, that's how it feels, that's what I live. Um, there's so much healing that can be done. Well, you know, if we can't cure a disease, that's one thing, but can, can there be healing in the sense that you don't feel so isolated and alienated, right? That we can reduce some of the shame and stigma and secrecy around this just by showing this is what it feels like on the page. And then for people who have no experience with Alzheimer's, those folks aren't going to probably, they're definitely not going to pick up the Journal of Neuroscience. No. They're probably not even going to pick up a nonfiction you know, memoir or not some some nonfiction book about the disease. They're not going to pick up the thirty six hour day because um, it's not part of their their lived experience yet. It's not on their radars. But they might pick up a novel. So this is how we can reach people beyond the folks who are, are affected today and and get a sense of um, everybody caring about this as many people as possible. So it reaches beyond the community of just Alzheimer's. For our audience who are listening, The 36-Hour Day is a beautiful book for caregivers to understand the complexity of living with someone who is experiencing cognitive impairment and dementia. Um, in, in many ways, Lisa, your work has inspired me to always remind my, my patients and their family members because 
the patient usually doesn't come alone in the clinic. You know, it's usually right. one loved one or a family. And Dean actually invites everybody from their family members to come over. We all know that Dean is in active session when all the chairs from the other rooms are stolen and taken to his room. Because when you go in there, there's like eight people. Yeah. That's you are Your work has inspired me to always remind people that it's, it's critical to separate the person from the disease, right? We always start defining someone with dementia, like a demented person, a, a patient with Alzheimer's disease. No, this is a person. This is Mary who is experiencing this condition. And it's very important for family members in the community to remember him as Mary, as a very complex person who did phenomenal things in her life, who had incredible you know, situations and stories in her life. It's difficult to do that when you have 20 minutes to see someone every three months, but it's like, it's, it's almost like forcing yourself to think that way. And that changes, it changes your management, it changes the words that you use, it changes the words that the family members use with their loved ones as well. So it's really, really important for, and thank you for bringing the human side to this devastating disease. Yeah, it, words matter. Yeah. It, it frames how we think about our worthiness, our identity. Um, I found that to be true for of everyone I spoke to with Alzheimer's, this sense of who am I now and how do I matter with this in a world that tends to be very, you know, if, if you've got anything going on from the neck up, there's a very special taboo that goes along with that. Like there's a lot of fear and um, misunderstanding um, that goes with anything going on from the neck up. So people tend to get really uncomfortable around you. Um, and look away. And, and so it, it can be very lonely. It can be very, you know, how, how do I stay connected to the life I used to have? How do I create a life and a new relationship now? Who am I? That's the biggest question. A lot of people ask, like, who am I now that I have this? And so having doctors who recognize the human in you that's still here, that's why I called the book Still Alice. Yes. She's still here. She's still worthy of being and connecting. And even if she can't remember this conversation a half an hour from now, it doesn't mean that that conversation didn't matter both to her and the other people in it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. This is beautiful. I mean, right. And one of the reasons that we, well, we bring the family members in, <clears throat> I think it's the most important thing we do. I mean, giving people errors up and amend and all of that is fine, but it's not really be outside of much of a treatment, but it, it's useful where it is. Where it matters is that preparing the family for that journey so that enough people know the journey, enough people know that the person is still going to be there no matter what phase they're in or no matter how much is forgotten, they're still there. They're literally, it's the most important thing I've read in a long time is your book, mm-hmm. your books, which is giving humanity uh, their, its due uh, and, and, and the families to, to be prepared in that journey where you're feeling un- uncomfortable, that sense of dissonance, the sense of dissonance subconsciously pushes you away in many, many different ways. Not in, the, in a um, um, non-caring way, but at the end of the day, it becomes dispassionate, you know, it's, it becomes disconnected, whatever the reason may be, whatever the mechanism may be. Just having greater awareness, greater points of contact along the family allows that 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 stillness that you brought that allows that connectedness allows that connective tissue that makes a family maintain that person longer and more more there and and it's it's the most important thing i think we do yeah, no. in a clinic ironically it seems like 
um, um, a conversation session, but it must be that because it can't be just a disease. And and uh, you can't believe how many people I've, I've recommended family members. I've recommended your books to them. It's it's almost like every one of the thousands that we we've, we've, we've met. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. Oh, that's so cool to know. Awesome. Um, I guess at this point, I, I would love to know, and I'm always curious about how you come up with, <laughs> you know, this this persona in your story. Like, how does it come to you? I know that you have this incredible background of being connected both in the academic world and you're such a beautiful, you know, storyteller. But when you're creating a character, what is the process for you to keep that authenticity? So, so I'm always looking to tell the truth under the imagined circumstances. So I've done all of this research, especially with the folks who live with the disease or the condition or the disorder. And, and so I sort of know sort of the common threads of truth, the common threads of human experience that can happen if someone's diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So now I've got to create a character. And it's interesting. I actually, I've never taken a writing class, um, but I... I did very serendipitously train as an actress while I was writing Still Alice. Like I'd always wanted to learn how to act. And now that I was a neuroscientist writing a novel, I figured there were no rules for me anymore. So I would also do some acting. Um, and I found that the principles of acting apply so beautifully to writing. And so things like you're always raising the stakes as high as possible whenever possible. Um, what do people want from each other? Who's getting it? Who's not? And how are people changed by what happens? So those are some of the big ones. And so thinking about, you know, what makes a good story and sort of all of those rules of craft, um, I made Alice a Harvard professor because I'm raising the stakes as high as possible now, right? Because he or she's going to be diagnosed with a disease that robs her of her ability to think and remember, right? It's going to cause, she's going to have dementia. And if she's placed all of her worth and identity in being able to think and remember at a very, very high level, that's really going to force her to wrestle with the questions of who am I now? And, and how can I matter if I can't, if I can't be that Harvard professor anymore? Um, I also wanted to give her a relationship that got closer because of her diagnosis and one where it, it pulled apart. Um, I'm never trying to, I, while I always believe in telling my stories with lots of hope, because I think that there is hope in every story I hear, even when I was writing about ALS, um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, people don't live the tragedy of their diagnosis 24-7. Um, there are the stages of grief, and I would paints that in for all of the characters. Um, so everybody, the person who is diagnosed and their family, all those people in your room, Dean, that come in, yeah. they're all going through the loss of the person and the relationship that they had. Um, and so, but they don't all go through it at the same time on the same days. So you have anger, denial, bargaining, despair, acceptance, but Mom might be in acceptance and dad's still in denial and one of the sons is in anger and the daughter is in, right? And so you get all these people in the same room and what do we do about mom who has Alzheimer's and everybody's in a very different emotional place? So I knew that was going to play a role in the story. Um, and so honestly, I don't outline my books. I, it's, it's kind of like, 
a very spiritual way of writing. Um, Julia Cameron has a book called The Artist's Way that I love, and I, I've read maybe four times. Um, it, it's it really about being present. So getting in the seat and say, okay, here I am on chapter, you know, I have the book I'm writing now, I think I'm on chapter 32, and just being there. What is there? What are the sensory moment-to-moment details? What is she feeling? What does she want? Um, you know, what does she need? Um, what happens if she doesn't get it? So it's everybody's the hero of their own life story. So it's just really getting into that p- empathy, feeling what she's feeling. Um, and then for all of my characters, so like with, with John and still Alice, um, I'm telling this story from Alice's point of view. And so at one point I was really losing track of John. I was like, he'd show up in a scene and like, I don't really know how he would react here. So I actually, while I wrote that book, I kept a separate journal for John that kept track of what he was feeling and what he wanted and what he was confused and heartbroken over. And and it was very hard for him um, to make the decisions that Alice wanted him to make that he could could and couldn't make. Um, So yeah, it's all about sort of getting inside those characters, inhabiting them as human beings and and sort of feeling what they feel and and knowing what they want. So uh, this is, I, I I'm going to go on a little tangent, but it's interesting to me. So that that so I I think that acting you brought up acting, and I, I've been talking about acting with the kids, and, and I think it's such an incredible incredible art. I mean, good acting. We've seen bad acting. That's that's just everything. <laughs> yeah, Fair. I mean. Um, uh, we just saw this uh, uh, Marvel uh, uh, movie, movie uh, with the Thor. Uh, oh, the Love and Thunder No, this latest one. So oh, there's a bunch of characters in that movie playing whatever. I'm not going to impugn, yeah, impugn anybody. But there's one character, and it's, uh, what's his name, the actor. Um, um, uh, yeah, it's an amazing actor. He doesn't care what kind of movie it is, if it's going to be a bomb. And his stream... His journey is, it's so indelible. It's uh, Christian, Christian Bale. Bale. Yeah, Christian it's Bale. Like, uh, yeah. You're looking at everybody else doing whatever. And then there's this incredible piece of psychotherapy in the middle of this whole thing. Yeah. Which is bewildering. If any, I think it's, it's like, like, you know, all the other characters are, sorry, no disrespect to lollipops, but like Christian Bale is tiramisu, you know? He's just <laughs> like, of course, <laughs> she had to bring the food, but that, no. <laughs> I relate. I relate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a perfect analogy. But it's uh, so the psychotherapy part of it. It's the self analysis. It's the bringing out as much in, uh, to the surface that it's flowering and flowering. And a lot of times you don't know how much is going to flower. So I love the act of acting. I think if I if I was um, uh, uh, you know uh, in, in another life, I would have some kind of character acting. Yeah, right. No, I can barely play the guitar, let alone act. So, or any art, artistic things. But the reality is, it's such a beautiful thing. And writing to me, great writing. There's writing where you just regurgitate the superficial thing that just comes out. And, but great writing, like, and I'm not giving you a full sum with you. It's that psychotherapy. If you really, really, and that's why it connects to most people because you're going so deep that it actually connects to the archetypes of humanity. I'm not to get too, but so tell me about the psychotherapy that you're going through in this journey of writing each of these characters, Lenny, you know, Alice. To me, that's like, it's, it's the most beautiful aspect of your work. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I learned so much as a human being when I with each book that I write. 
And I, I do like that. Those common, you know, I say I, I, I write a, uh, on the surface, I write about neurological conditions and you will learn a lot about the truth of what those diseases and conditions are, how they're diagnosed, how they're treated, what happens in the brain. I try to sneak that in a, a poetic way. Um, but I'm also always writing about our shared human condition. Yeah. So I learn, I learn a lot about myself. I, um, and I, I feel like I become a better person with each book I write if I'm paying attention. And I, I am paying attention. So like with Alice, it was listening to folks talk about being diagnosed and living with Alzheimer's. I think that even with my experience with my grandmother, I think that my preconceived notion of the disease was, again, because it makes me, it, at the time, it doesn't anymore, but it made me so uncomfortable that I just, I would, I would leave the situation really quickly and whew, I feel, that feels better. Now I'm not looking yeah. at Alzheimer's, right? So I think that um, it helped me imagine what living with Alzheimer's looks and sounds and feels like, whereas before my preconceived notion was Alzheimer's is a disease of the dying elderly. Yeah. Like Alzheimer's is dying. But what does living look like? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, so it was about really the, the, le the learned lessons in that book were understanding that we are all worthy of, of living while we're living, um, that people with Alzheimer's or people with anything uh, have value, and that if there's a, a disability or if there's a deficit, if there's something missing, and in Alzheimer's say it's memory, I can't remember what you said five minutes ago, that, that can be okay. I have a very good friend. His name is Greg O'Brien. He has Alzheimer's. He's had it since he was 59. He has early onset. He has two copies of APOE4, um, and he, he's one of my dearest friends. Yeah. And he forgets what he's saying in conversation with me all through the conversation, and that's okay. Yeah. If you can be comfortable with someone, right? If you can relax and be with and have compassion and empathy, Greg's just forgotten what I told him. That's okay. There's so much more to Greg than his ability to remember. So... That book taught that book taught me a lot about having having just more flexibility and forgiveness with all of our imperfections and all of our our um, flaws or inability to do certain things. Uh, but the other books too, it's like I, I learned about unconditional love and forgiveness and um, just all it's just our shared humanity with every book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's. It's um, uh, one of the things that uh, comes out of this, uh, your many books, is, is just that, which is uh, the ability to, to connect humanity in totality. I mean, we've, we've traveled quite a bit. And we actually met many, many, many miles away in a conversation in a third world country where we went back to help out. And in, in retrospect, it's the same, same uh, vulnerability um, the same vulnerability that, or, or sense of comfort with that vulnerability. It, it, the greater the discomfort with certain vulnerability, there's something in ourselves that makes us dissonant to that. And, 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 and so that's why one of the things that we tell our kids is, if there's something making you uncomfortable, take a few minutes to, to figure out what that could be. It's not about that thing. It might be about you. It might be about something in you, which is beautiful. Um, and this, so your, your, your latest book, um, in 2021, I believe, right? Yes, in May, yeah, in yeah. May. Remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So tell me how, 
that book is different from uh, from the others. Yeah, yeah what's yeah. because I, I guarantee you every every book is a growing as you said it's a growth process. But what was the growing in this book? Yeah. And just really quickly, too, because you mentioned the word vulnerability, which is so perfect. It's um, That's one of the biggest things every book teaches me, too, because the people who are willing to share their time with me, you know, we all only have so much time on this planet. We're all mortal, right? But we tend to sort of push that aside and forget that we are. Um, but people diagnosed with something like ALS or Huntington's or Alzheimer's, their mortality really is front and center and and with only so much time left they're willing to raise their hand and say I'll spend some of that time with you Lisa and share with you you know my biggest fears my regrets my hopes all of this very very intimate vulnerable personal stuff and it is um it, it what it teaches me a it's just it's so humbling it's such a, a enormous act of generosity um but we get to know each other extremely well. The The relationship that I form with people and doing the research for my books becomes very intimate. And it's a lesson in, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our relationships could be intimate and vulnerable like that, that open-hearted, open-souled, like, I'm going to share me with you and, and you're going to do the same. Um, I think so much of our day-to-day -day conversations are, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Um so that's a lesson I learned when, with all of my books is that if when it's safe to, if you can really share yourself with someone, that vulnerability is the human connection we all really desire. Um, but this book, Remember, that I wrote, I wasn't, you know, I'm a novelist at this point, so I wrote this nonfiction book because I was finding that in all the years that I've been using Still Alice as a vehicle for conversation about Alzheimer's, um, I was finding that wherever I gave a talk anywhere in the world about Alzheimer's, um, people would wait for me at the end of the book signing line, or they would, the women would follow me into the ladies' room, and they would pepper me with questions about the moments of forgetting they were experiencing. And these tended to be people over the age of 40, mostly 50s and 60s and beyond. And they would say to me, okay, so I'm always forgetting people's names. And if I don't write down everything I need to do on a to-do list, I won't remember to do it. And um, every day I walk into the kitchen and I don't know why I'm in there. So does this mean I'm getting Alzheimer's? And the examples they were bringing to me were pretty much these over and over again. Oh, I'm always forgetting where I put my phone or my keys or my glasses. Um, that must mean I'm getting Alzheimer's. And so in every single one of these conversations, I could say, well, no, all of the examples you've given me are moments of normal forgetting because you own a normal human brain. Yeah. Um, that our human brains are not designed to remember everything. And there was this expectation that human memory is supposed to be perfect. And so when it's not, people were assuming, especially after a certain age, when Alzheimer's is on people's radars, oh my God, this must mean there's something wrong with my brain. There must be something wrong with my memory. And then there's this chronic stress response and anxiety that people are carrying every day. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have to maybe write this down so I'm not just helping one person at a time in the ladies' room. Um, so that was the reason behind Remember. It's like, okay, let me see if I can... And I'd be really gentle here because people find it overwhelming. Yeah. Like people find... If I, oh, you're going to teach me about the brain? This is what the two of you do so well, too, by the way, um, is that you really um, are so conversational and so human and gentle about, let me explain to you how this works. So I thought, I want to write a book that feels like 
a fun and gentle conversation with a good friend about how memory works, how we remember, why we forget. And she just happens to be a neuroscientist, so you're going to get yeah. Yeah, the real deal. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted people to, like, have the owner's manual. Like, this yeah. is how memory works. Yeah. This is what we can, you know, this is how to improve it and optimize it. But that wasn't really the focus of this book. But, like, the, here's how memory works and the things that it loves. So, if you want to remember better, if you want to study for a test, or if you want to remember what happened last year, like, here are the things that the that memory needs to remember things better. Here's how to support the health of your memory and your brain, which, again, the two of you are geniuses at communicating. But I have that in there as well. But my biggest contribution, I think, in this book was showing people how, how, why forgetting is – under what circumstances is forgetting totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. So you can either just go, eh, I'm not going to worry about it because that happens, or how to you know navigate around it so that it doesn't disrupt your life, so that you can find your parked car, so yeah. that you – you know, can figure out why you walked into the kitchen. Um, but know that the reason you can't pull it up in this moment is normal and not a cause for panic and, and freaking out. It, it's, it's so important because there, uh, there are so many people out there basically waiting to build a empire, to build an industry, to build uh, their wealth around this fear. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and they, they, they're, uh, they're hunting for uh, uh, these vulnerabilities. They're hunting for these fears. They actually create the fear so that then they can um, uh, plunder it into... Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and that and yeah. sell the remedy. And, and that's, really a, uh, that's yeah. a huge problem because it's, it's working on the most important or it's degrading the most important thing that we have as humanity, this vulnerable being, which is hope. They play on people's hopes and they play on people's fears, which is the most cynical way to live. We, we see these scientists, they've done great work and all of a sudden they've become this cynical pill pop pushers. And we're actually not against pills. In fact, on the other side, we're fighting all these people that are just throwing out baby with the bathwater. No, science works. Molecular yes. science works. All of that. But also this. Yes. But these cynical, cynical people who are playing on people's hopes and fears and and you telling them that no, this is normal, you know, normal part of aging. How often people come to us and nope, this is fine. There's a little bit of nervousness. This is you know, focus being the gatekeeper of consciousness. Your focus being affected by fear, by anxiety, and so on and so forth. So I love that concept of kind of giving people the normality of of just living in perfectly. Exactly right. Yeah. We don't, our brains were not designed to remember everything. Yeah. Um, they're not designed to remember people's names. They're not designed to remember what to do later. And they're not designed to catalog everything that we encounter. Um, and then a lot of times we're not forgetting anything. We just didn't pay attention. Yeah. And you can't remember anything unless you neurologically give your brain your attention on that thing. So, um yeah, and to your point, it's, you know, everybody wants the magic pill, and Alzheimer's is scary. Growing old is, you know, there's a lot that can happen that's scary, and I got that, and people would love the magic pill. Yeah. Uh, and and pe I, those folks out there who are claiming to have the magic pill that will, you know, this one pill will prevent Alzheimer's, or this one pill will, you know, boost your memory, and it, it's, um, I tell people all the time, they're, they're lying to you. Yeah. It's not true. If yeah. those if that were true, you would hear it 
you know, from all of the trusted people I know. And like, this is just, it's not the case. Um, or the fear that, you know, bread is going to give you Alzheimer's. Like, it's <laughs> like, not true. No. Um, but there are people trying to scare you into taking their magic supplement. And so I try telling people all the time, it's like, there's no magic pill, but there are things that work as if they were magic pills. Yeah. Yeah. So we know, and you guys post so much wonderful education regularly on the data behind exercise and Mediterranean or Mediterranean or mind diet, yeah. sleep, all of the the things that aren't, you know, super sexy and do require a little bit of effort on our part. But the data are amazing. And that if I told you that a pill did what 30 minutes of exercise a day could do, or what seven to nine hours of sleep a night could do, you would take that pill and probably pay a lot of money for it too. Or the most unsexy of them all, greens, eating greens, just a, you know, a salad. Yeah. I mean, how you, how you, you can't create an industry around a salad. Well, you could potentially, but you could. It, it doesn't, it doesn't go far. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now I so appreciate the fact that you weave in evidence, which, you know, we're very, uh, very, very, very passionate about you even evidence based information with storytelling as well. So I, I really appreciate that. And um, in, in many ways, um, I think we're both fighting this misconception and, uh, you know, forcing people to make sure that they don't get duped by all the charlatans out there. And, and, and you know, I, I, I'm usually a very nice person, but I can become really mean and rude when I'm faced with people like that because you know how it is when individuals, vulnerable individuals are taken um, advantage of at that stage. Oh, it's so life. upsetting because people will spend thousands of dollars of money yeah. they might not really have yeah. to try and save their brains and they're being sold something that's untrue. So yeah. it, it is upsetting. It's da- those people are dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I thank you for calling them out. No, like, thank you. Dean and I know that, you know, in addition to being a phenomenal novelist, you're also a public speaker, you're an advocate, you've, um, you've actually collaborated with multiple different organizations that are doing Alzheimer's research. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in those areas? Yeah, sure. Um, so I do a lot of speaking. Um, I do te- I've done a couple of TED Talks. I have a TED course on, on your brain and memory. Um, and I... I do a lot of work with the women's Alzheimer's movement with Maria Shriver, trying to understand. So women are twice as likely as men to develop Alzheimer's. Long while back, we thought, well, age is the number one risk factor. Maybe it's just because women outlive men and there are more 85-year-old women than 85-year-old men. That is not the case. There's something else going on. Historically, we only studied male brains. So... Yeah. So Maria, of course, if you know Maria at all, she's like, what? we're not studying female brains. This is wrong. And I will correct this. Yeah. So she is devoting a large part of her time and energy and, and force of, of goodness in the world to um, rectifying that and, and raising money and, and putting money into understanding women's brains and Alzheimer's in women's brains. Yeah. Um, I love Hilarity for Charity. Yes, that is Seth Lauren Rogan's organization that is about educating, especially young people, because they say, oh, this is a disease that takes maybe 20 years to develop in a brain. Yeah. Well, we should be teaching young people about brain health and making brain health sexy yeah. and fun and cool. 
So they're doing tons of education, especially with the younger generations, and also um, giving money to caregivers because Lauren's mom had yeah. early onset Alzheimer's, and they have the money to um, pay for caregiving, but recognize that what if we didn't? How on earth would we do this? And so they know that you know there are millions of people out there who don't have the money to hire outside help, and therefore are juggling maybe you know, I've, maybe you're still raising kids of your own and a parent has Alzheimer's and you have to, and you have a full-time job. And so how does that even work? Um, so they're giving money to help people with caregiving, which is yeah. just a very generous, beautiful thing, um, mission. Um, who else? The Cure Alzheimer's Fund here in Boston um, that funds a um, they they are acting sort of like a, a venture capital company they where they're like, we're going to invest in high risk but smart research that would take way too long and too much red tape to get a government grant, and we're just going to fund you. Um, and and they dump in the 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 philanthropist who started this organization pays for all of the administrative costs, so all of the money donated goes directly to research. So I do a lot for those folks too. Amazing, remarkable, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, we 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 focus on our not for profit Healthy Minds Initiative. We focus on the community side. So translation of what has been shown, but in a way that actually sticks to the unique natures of each community. My, my our PhD thesis was around this translational aspect of things: uh, community based participatory research and community based participatory action. And we've actually focused on uh, the, uh, the disparities populations. By the way, the biggest one is women. And by the way, the best place to invest in any healthcare, and this is my public health background in Janasha, is in women because a dollar spent in women is four times more effective than anywhere else, even in molecular research anywhere. So when you, when you empower women in a community, you've empowered the entire community exponentially. So. It's just remarkable work that uh, that uh, you do, and and I think what's what's happening um, because of because just 1990s we didn't know much about Alzheimer's and then President Reagan, and and he came out and that actually brought up some awareness, and then there was a whole lot of confusion because everybody was focused on the amyloid thesis, which is not wrong, but it's not the total story, and and it, it just took all of the air, all of the oxygen. And now it needed people to kind of open up the, the venue into a more complex approach. Like you said, well, research your women, research in communities, to the young people. That's where it starts, even as, as, as young as high school and, and college students. Um, you, you working on, on these things. Are you also kind of focusing uh, on a specific, do you have your particular specific area? If there's anybody who knows the whole spectrum, it's, it's you by now. Um, from the science to the human condition, is there a particular place that you think is the highest yield as, if people had to focus on? Oh, in terms of like, if you have a dollar to give, yeah. like, yeah. where would you put it? That's hard. Um, I think, no, I, I don't. I think it depends on sure. what feels good to you, right? Yeah. So I like, honestly, the three I just said. So one is like, let's put our money into women and yeah. women's brains. I'm a woman, I'm a feminist. I feel like that's like just really important and will probably yield some amazing results and outcomes. Um, I love that 
I, I don't ever want to abandon the people living with it today. So yeah. I love the Seth and Lauren Rogan organization that they're focusing on. Like, yeah, we want to care, but that might not happen right now or in five years or 10 years or whenever. It's like, well, what about the people who have it now? Let's not abandon and ignore them. Yeah. Um, and then I still want to, I would love to see a preventative medicine for Alzheimer's in my lifetime. Um, and so I'm, you know, let's keep, let's fund smart research. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on, you know, what, what lights you up, right? So yeah. certain people will be jazzed about donating for caregiving. They're like, no, I want the cure. I got to donate to the cure. Yeah. Other people who've made, especially people who've lived this know that, that the human experience with Alzheimer's can be really, really hard and can be financially devastating. Um, it can be, you know, families can bank go bankrupt over this. So um, that might be where they, they want to make a difference um, and contribute. Absolutely. No, this is, I love that, um, you know, I love that we have the opportunity and we're in a time where we can see the multifaceted picture of right. dementia and Alzheimer's disease and get involved in it. Um, I, I have a, I have a question about your books being translated into movies. So, uh, you know, a lot of them have been movies and, you know, uh, television shows. I, I watched Still Alice. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Um, what did the process look like? And did you actually have a say in what the movie or the adaptation would actually look like um, on TV? So it's, I've only actually, we've only done the one, Still Alice. I have many in development and each one is different. So with Still Alice, I, I had no say and I, I very willingly gave up all control oh. and had no problem with that because I recognized that I'm not a filmmaker. <laughs> so why would I be in charge of any of this when I've never seen it or done it before? So I placed my trust in um, the, the producers and the directors. Um, the directors also co-wrote the script. They were wonderful and generous in involving me when they didn't have to. So they sent me various drafts of the script and asked for input, and some of it they took and some of it they didn't. Um, it's a fascinating process to watch. I mean, the, the man who optioned the film rights, James Brown, he's a producer, he read the book um, on a flight from Australia to London, and by the time he landed, he knew he wanted to make this film, and there was a specific scene in the book that really lit him up thing he could imagine it on the screen he said, that was the scene when i knew that this was going to be a movie that scene was never written into the script oh, oh. i know wow. and, and then and then of of what they filmed some of those scenes didn't make it into the movie because in the editing process they moved some scenes around and then certain scenes didn't make sense anymore and they had to drop out yeah so it's it was a lesson in not it was a lesson in non-attachment um, so, and it was also a lesson in like big picture perspective, right? It was, and I had that, it was as long as they do a good job and it's in service of telling the story with dignity and respect, right? If, if the story, if the story gets made and yeah. it's done well enough that people see it, that's the point. I want, you know, the world to be able to see this story about a woman with Alzheimer's. And so it, the details didn't matter if they got lost in translation. Um, and it was, it was surreal to watch them do it. I was on set. Um, and I got to go, I mean, I was at the Oscars. I got to go to a lot of the, the um, festivals along the way. And it was, a, it was trippy. On the morning of the Oscars, I was standing in line in Starbucks. And I'm just 
thinking about my Nana, who it's all started with her, tears rolling down my face. I can hear the sound of her laugh. Just like, can you believe this, Nana? Like, look what just happened. Um, yeah. And so we're doing um, every note played. I can't give you the details that I would love to, but we are. It's like, I keep checking my email, like, can we say, can we say? Um, we're going to be filming this fall in New York. Um, and yes, so that's the one about the concert pianos with ALS. And what? I can announce the cast soon, so check my Instagram. Um, can you tell us the, the cast? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I would love to, but I can't. Yes. Um, and then Inside the O'Briens, that one's had a very long journey. Um, we had Russell Crowe a couple of times. He dropped out. We had a director who rewrote the original script. And we had Tony Collette and Thomas Hayden Church and Haley Richardson. And the director left. And then we had no director. And then it all fell apart. And then um, a little over a year ago, I had an idea, a way of rewriting the script. Um, and my agent and the um, uh, producer loved it. And then I said, well, how about if I write it? And they said, yes. And then I tried to back out because I'm like, well, I don't know how to write a script. I've not done that. But I, did, I ended up doing it. It took me about a year. I wrote the script for Inside the O'Briens. Oh, wow. And we're, yeah, we're right now trying to get our director. Um, and then Left Neglected has also been optioned and they're writing the script right now. Well, no, so that's incredible. Hopefully all of these will happen. No, oh, yeah. no. And are, you, are, you, are you being pulled? Because I know psychologically or intellectually, you you're also intrigued by this whole process. I mean, imagine a neuroscientist who went into fiction fiction writing. I mean, and you said that was such a growing experience, such a um, amazing. So, are you thinking about directing some of these as well, or having some part in directing? No, I don't know nearly enough. Um, no. That would that's not even something I can imagine at this point. I'm not saying I wouldn't someday. I think that I'll no. write more for for film and, and TV though. Yeah. Uh, I'm finishing a book right now about a, a young woman with, with bipolar disorder. And um, I'm hoping that that one will get optioned pretty quickly. Um, and then the producer, it's, it's James Brown again, who I wrote um, Inside the O'Briens for the, the script. He's, he's optioned that. Um, he's asked me to write uh, another movie. Um, it's a, I think it's intended to be a comedy. Well, I, yes, it, it's about a group of menopausal women in a, a clinical trial support group for a menopause drug. How <laughs> <laughs> cool that! Oh wow, that's going to be departure for me. But I'm 52 yeah. and feel like that's something I I could be down with. So I'm going to try it. So I'm going to say yes to that next adventure. Um, so I'll be oh, writing. Gosh, you know, I, I think writing comedy has got to be one of the most difficult things. Not doing them, but it's in because yeah. comedy is. I think comedy oh, is um, so intelligent. So I mean, good comedy. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, ready to your point, I the book I'm writing now about the woman with bipolar disorder. She is an aspiring stand-up comic. Oh. That's the character I decided on. Yeah. And so I did a lot of research on comedy for this book, and I took a stand-up writing comedy class, and I did a five-minute set. So oh. it's very hard no. and i have to write a lot of her comedy in in this book and um it 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 is it, it's different and i like it it's oh, hard wow. in, a, in a fun yeah. challenging way well stand up talk about vulnerability and stillness talk about vulnerability and stillness. i i think there's nothing more uh, it, it's just amazing it's amazing 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So like every book I write, I learn about the, the disease, the condition, and I also have to learn about the character and the story. So I take those as opportunities. So like inside the O'Brien's, Katie O'Brien, um, one of the two main characters, um, she's a yoga teacher. So I did a 200 hour yoga teacher training um, <laughs> to learn about her. And I took piano lessons when I was writing about the concert pianist. Wow. And so this is just, you know, I get to be a, a, a lifelong student with these projects, which is really fun. It's gorgeous. Well, it's the complexity definitely comes through in your words and the way you describe situations. Thank you. Which is good for our brains, right? We get to learn new things and this is good for our brains developing new neural connections, giving us cognitive reserve. If there's anything at that, absolutely. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to aspiring writers, someone who wants to go in this journey? I mean, you've, you've, you've had such an amazing experience because you, you deal with the real life situation. You're a scientist, so you know exactly what goes on in the brain, and then you translate it so beautifully. If someone wants to become a writer, a novelist, um, what advice would you give them? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I was lucky because I didn't know what I didn't know. I think that a lot of writers, there's a lot of fear in the way, and it's it's the, well, what if it's, you know, what if I can't finish it, or what if it's not good, or what if it never gets published, or what if I can't make a career out of it and it's it's um just give yourself permission to write today yeah um and so for me like while i'm writing um you know when the research is done or mostly done and i'm actually sitting down to write today which i am um i commit to writing a thousand words right. and they can so it's the permission to write Horrible words. It's, uh, you know, you sit down and get the words down because you can edit something. You can't edit nothing. Yeah. Um, and that you're, I tell pe young people all the time, we're like, oh, I don't know. Or even older people who want to write, oh, I don't know if I, maybe later, maybe someday. I say, you know, you're going to be dead someday. Do yeah. it now. Yeah. If you really want to do it, give, giving yourself permission to do it, I think is one of the biggest things. And then do your homework, right? Like, so, you know, if you don't know how to write, dialogue get a book on writing how to write dialogue or take a class or but you don't need an mfa you don't need these things i don't have it go take an acting class great great um the, the best writing class i ever took was acting um but sit down and do it yeah oh, absolutely i think that's a beautiful lesson for life too you know sometimes we overwhelm ourselves with the complexity of the work at hand and we yeah. just kind of create this narrative that dissuades us from jumping yes. in and doing it. Yes, and so like I can't write 300 pages today. That's overwhelming. Oh my god! I, like I can't write. People say, "Oh, I can't write a whole novel. I don't have time." It's like, well, you know, can you write two pages today? Can you write a page today? Yeah. Well, if you wrote a page every day, you'd be done in a year. Yeah. 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 So just you know, manageable. We can do we can do small things every day, and they add up. Absolutely. That was our parenting conversation with our kids last week. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, that's, the, that's the, the false perfection, false um, um, uh, grandeur of the moment. It's 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 always small steps. And courage is that one step. Courage is not a big journey. It's the one step, and and it's such a beautiful thing. Um, I tell you, I've, I'm not at at the, at, the, at the cost of sounding like um, you know the. Giving you a false and flattery. It's, it's okay. It's, we'll we'll yeah. do her. We're so inspired. We, we've had hundreds of conversations. 
this is very important to us because I think you represent what, what we think is extremely important. Somebody that can translate honestly and, 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 and importantly, uh, as a vulnerably and in a way that can connect to the most people, what needs to be translated of science, which is the human component. That's it. Uh, the, the, yeah, that's Thank the you. most important thing we can do. And you do it better than anybody we know. I mean, uh, so uh, oh that's why it was so important. Uh, maybe we don't know a lot of people, Lisa. So that was my attempt at comedy. Yeah, we do know a lot of people. We know a lot of people. But and so I really think that um, your work is so important, and we love to see the next project. We we're going to be connected with you, um, and uh, for for a long time. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm huge fans of both of you. What your work? I same, same, same. Your work is so important. I cheer you on from home. I applaud all that you're doing to educate the public and in such a a very truthful, fact based, compassionate, conversational way. Um, yeah, like we we feel like we know you, we trust you, and it's real. So I I thank you both so much. I think you're beautiful humans. And yes, when I'm in LA next, I'm finding you. Oh my gosh, that's uh, and if there's a bad actor you need from any of your movies, <laughs> I'm very yeah, yeah, I can be a backup actor. Yeah, that's too. right. I that's really right. Love being in that. Yes. Yeah. All right, here's to more conversation in the future. Hopefully, Lisa. Uh, thank you for everything we do, and and we love you. I love you too.